oh, well, hey there, you listen to the Cracked Podcast. Did you know that? You should. You're listening to it. And you are somebody who Squarespace would like to get to know. They know our listeners have things to sell, things to write, ways to show themselves off online that maybe they just aren't doing quite yet. Why don't you use a beautiful template created by a world-class designer to build your very own customized website for yourself and enjoy 24-7 support from Squarespace's team. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also a little terrified of letting you hear today's episode. It's not scary or anything. It's very fun. We have a good time. But on this week's show, I am pretty open and honest about being dumb. Uh, Today's show is about the stock market and about how it's even more powerful than most people realize. It's about history and economics and just a lot of fun stuff about how our world is more interesting than people think it is. Because the stock market, it turns out it's not some giant, giant machine that no one can impact on their own. It's more like Ferris Bueller's car. Uh, Have you seen that movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Because this is a film where uh, it's got a real cool red sports car in it, right? And Ferris, the titular character, he just kind of takes it. And then he just does whatever he wants with it for a while. Then he gives it to two Chicago parking attendants. The two parking attendants do whatever they want with it for a while. Then later, Ferris gets the car back. Then later, his friend kicks it out of a garage into a ravine. And it turns out the stock market is that easy to manipulate. There are people across history, since we've had an even kind of global economy, who have done everything from steer the market off a cliff to steer the market into giving them a billion dollars in a day to changing the fortunes of entire countries like Scotland that we'll get into later. I find it fascinating, and I think it's also sort of exciting because it means that you too uh, should not crash the car. We all want to be fine, but you too can be somebody who participates in this market because despite what you've been told, it's open to everyone. I grew up thinking the stock market was only for very specific people to use, and by grew up thinking that, I mean I still kind of think that a little bit, but it's something that everyone should at least have some familiarity with, because if you want to move through the world and and be able to do things, that's out there and is so important to it, and my guest is a perfect person to talk to about that. We are joined by Gabby Dunn, comedian, writer, YouTube icon, and host of the podcast Bad With Money. It's a show that, as she'll describe, sprang from her own personal financial situation and uh, trying to just figure out how any of this stuff works. And now she runs a show where experts will help you figure out what's going on and how to deal with your own financial sitch. She also is joining me in both of us trying to figure out a lot of these things and just understand them better. I hope when I am somewhat ignorant of things at times in this episode, I want that to be a reflection of how everybody is figuring this out, and it's okay if you don't totally know it. And uh, there are other episodes where I know the subject completely front to back. I hope this one, it's sort of an experiment, and let's see how it goes together. So please sit back or throw on like a white lab coat so we can be on theme with experiments. You know, isn't that what they wear in movies? Maybe real life? We'll find out. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Gabby Dunn. I'll be back after we wrap up. 
Talk to you then. What is your history with money? Like, what oh what led you into it? That might be an enormous question, but I'm curious. No, I started the podcast because I felt like there was like a fundamental misunderstanding. Well, basically, I wrote an article for for Fusion. What was Fusion at the time? I wrote an article for them about. Um, how there was like a huge misunderstanding about how YouTubers make money, which is kind of a thing that I I do. I'm writer, sure. actress, whatever, but I also yeah. have a YouTube channel, and um, and people thought that anyone who had a YouTube channel was a millionaire, and that was not true. And I was very frustrated with people coming at me being like, oh, get that ad money, like so famous, so rich. But then there was like a huge difference between visibility and. Um, and financial stability. And also like most of the videos I did, I did not get paid for. So I ended up interviewing a bunch of my friends who had that same problem where they were like super famous online, but then had day jobs and the way that fans reacted to that. And so once I wrote that article, it went like crazy viral, that article, because I don't think people had really explained it. Like it's embarrassing. So I don't think any YouTuber had really been honest about their finances prior uh, to that. Like they like that perception of yeah, being exactly. a millionaire from mm-hmm. just like, YouTube revenue, I guess, maybe ads too. Yeah, branded like stuff. branded. Like who who was going to, like it was, it ended up being embarrassing. And a side thing from that was that because I had basically spilled that I would did a lot of branded deals just because I needed the money at the time. Like I talked about how I would take branded deals that I didn't really care about just because I was like, I have to pay my rent. Yeah. Because of that, a couple brands dropped me almost immediately after that, after the article went viral. There were instantaneous negative consequences to coming out as like poor, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the long term, in the long term, it was better to be honest and especially to be honest with my audience. So then the podcast was basically like, if something's embarrassing, especially that has the stigma of money, yeah. poke the wound, like get in there. Cause my idea was that if I'm embarrassed of this, there must be tons of people who are also embarrassed and who have no starting point to talk about it. So the first season of the podcast was basically me exposing my family, me. You know, I didn't know what my student loans were. I didn't know, like, uh, what my bills were. I would, I was like, would throw my mail away. Uh, really? Yeah, I just thought, like, if they, if it was really important, they'd find me. <laughs> <laughs> so you, were you even vetting it based on, like, this looks businessy, this doesn't? Or were you just chucking if anything it wasn't that like, wasn't a personal letter yeah, or something? Yeah, if it wasn't, like, a birthday card, it went in the mail. <laughs> it went in the trash. So, like— <laughs> I like the idea that just one time of year you are yeah. checking mail. Like, well, I was born, so— <laughs> Yeah, there might be a check in here. Uh, but everything else, right in the trash. You know, I don't come from— a wealthy family. And I realized partially that like out here in LA, I would be like, how does everyone get to do these things? And then I, and nobody has a job. And then like, it occurred to me way late in the game that like people's parents helped them. So I just didn't know any of this stuff. So I just kind of was like very open about it on the show. That's how like my history with money, like started the show essentially. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. And, well, and I feel like it's probably some elements of being a YouTuber and stuff are less common, but the, the basic element of not knowing how money works or how to use it is probably, it seems like it's crazy common. And I mean, I was like, ashamed of it. I said, yeah. was there some day in elementary school that I missed and that was the day we learned about money? Yeah. 
like that's what I thought. I mean, that's that's what why the show I think has resonated with people because there is like no financial literacy, and it's also a topic that everyone is scared of. Like, people judge you, and it's a, and because it, it seems like everybody's also in debt in a way that they don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like I just checking around before this, I was like, I wonder how Americans are doing with their debt. And it turns out almost everyone's in it. Uh, like mm-hmm. Time Magazine went through Federal Reserve data, and they broke out Americans by age groups. And the group in the worst boat was people 45 to 54 are in over 134 grand of debt mm-hmm. on average. And mm-hmm. then even people under 35 were 67 grand. And then people 75 and up were in over $34,000 of debt yeah. on average. Like I think we have a collective issue that we're like, all not talking about? Well, the problem that I've found through three seasons of the show is that we have this false idea of individualism and American dream and American, like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. And the individualism of it means that we look at people who are bad with money as morally, intellectually, and, like, spiritually less than. Instead of being like, we're all in this together, oh, my God, there must be a problem with the student loan system. There must be a problem with government assistance. There must be a problem with the minimum wage. We go, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you? Rather than, like, banding together. And that, in my mind, I mean, I've become totally conspiracy theory nutso person. (laughs) But, like, it's it's on purpose. It's to keep us in the status quo. Like, the shame and the stigma keeps us from, like, rioting on the streets, which is what we should be doing about all of this stuff. But we just go, oh, it's my fault for not working hard enough. Or it's this person who's who's on welfare. It's their fault for not working hard enough. We have this, like, individualistic idea that's, like, very American. And it's incorrect. And it's keeping us all poor. And that's why, like, other than racism, that's why (laughs) it's, like, the economically anxious whites vote against their own interests. Because we have this idea that, like— oh, it's not a systemic issue. It's like, it's that those people and aren't working hard enough. And if I could just work harder, I could be like these billionaires. You can't. There's almost no economic mobility between classes in America right now. But everyone just has this idea in their mind that they could one day be wealthy. Right, because we're all separate cowboys. That's what I mean. We're all Americans who we're just on different parts of the range on a horse. Right. And if we ride better, we would be doing better. Uh, yeah. Is a real loose <laughs> metaphor, but uh, I, I don't, apparently don't know how money works or cowboys work. We're talking a lot today about the stock market yes. and how it's bizarrely uh, powerful. I, I think people know that it's important, you yes. know, and it moves a lot of money. Sure. But it's a thing that really weirdly specific people with tremendous opportunity and power mm-hmm. can move the whole planet. They can just mm-hmm. do that. And I, I didn't really know that before. At the same time, we as regular people, maybe we, maybe there are things we can do, but I think you're right. It does seem like it's hard to move up in that and it's hard to like change the world necessarily as just ourselves. Well, we were, uh, before we were on mic, uh, we were talking about like the mythologizing of the stock market in, in the media and in pop culture, especially yeah. with like Wolf of Wall Street or just regular Wall Street or <laughs> <laughs> Wall, Wall Street, Street 2. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, And there's this idea of like, you know, that it's this very powerful, very masculine thing, right? The the symbol of Wall Street is literally a bull. Like it's so masculine. Yeah. There's um, a big statue of it and everything. Yes. They (laughs) put it there to scare away ladies. Um, And it's like in this, this thing of like you have a superpower and you're super smart if you're good at this. 
like it's gambling. It's literally gambling. It's literally uh, like luck of the draw. I mean, you can have some knowledge of it, but it, it but it's like just guess it's guessing. It's mythologized guessing. This like thing that women, especially women have and other marginalized people have this chip on their shoulder of like I can't invest. I don't know enough. Meanwhile, like dudes who don't know shit about shit are like, yeah, I'll invest. I'll invest right now. So like, (laughs) um, but no, but like, and so it keeps marginalized people out of this thing that like could maybe be a good thing or a terrible thing, but it, but it's not based on your race or your sex or anything. It's based on like essentially luck. Yeah, well, I think you're right that pop culture, it does frame the people who are good at it as just kind of different from the rest of us. Right. I I oddly remember seeing the movie Wall Street on home video and Michael Douglas's shirts really weirded me out because I had never seen a contrast collar before where the I'm collar is different. I'm literally wearing from the, one right now. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I, I had never seen that, and I was very young, and I was like, oh, he's just he's just on a different plane than me. He yeah, made a, a, a white collar a with Wall a Wall Street guy. Yeah. Well, that's like the shirt that we, you know what I mean, that we like associate with it. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that these people are risk takers and that they're cool. Like, right. this was the problem with Wolf of Wall Street is people – it was, like, meant as a cautionary tale. But then men watched it and were like, I want to be just like Jordan Belfort. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> you are missing the point. <laughs> it's a real guy who you shouldn't imitate. Yeah, yeah but yeah. the idea is that, like, oh, he made a lot of money, so worth it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and he's seen as, like, a, a special type of person. Meanwhile, there's nothing that's keeping women from investing and and, and other marginalized people other than one, this like we need to have the confidence of white cis dudes and two, like it's a lack of resources. Like we might not have money to invest, which is a big problem because there's this whole thing of like just invest your money, like all these finance um, experts, quote unquote, who are like, here's my idea for you. Just invest. And then like the rest of us are like, what do you mean just invest? Like with what? Like, Oh, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? What do, with what money? With what? Toward what? <laughs> How? Right. Other questions. That is such a thing, Maria, too, that I feel like psychology is so much of the entire stock market. Of course. In a way that's sort of terrifying to me, because in my head going in, I had I had always felt that Oh, it's probably a thing that is based more on how companies are doing and things like that. You know, yeah. like their tangible success is driving this. It's only part of it. Yeah. And us regular investors, maybe there's only a few hundred to use. But people like uh, Jonathan Lebed is someone, he's in a cracked article, The Five Most Diabolical Crimes Planned and Executed by Kids. Uh, I love, oh my God. Yeah. Tell me everything. Uh, it's by, by Eddie Rodriguez and Dennis Fulton. And I love kid crimes. Yeah, and Jonathan Lebed was 15 when he did it. So not kid kid, but a teenager, you That's know? That's a kid. And he, what he did is he took, uh, you know, not ours, you and I, but people's instinct to want to just have strategies to like, I'll just pick that company that's right. going to win and then I win. And so he used Yahoo message boards and made a bunch of logins and a bunch of accounts and did a scheme which is called pump and dump where you make it seem like a stock is going to do great that you own and then you sell it off immediately after doing that. So you make people think it's going to do great, bail on it immediately. And he made $800,000 as a 15-year-old just using Yahoo message boards to encourage people to raise the price and sell it. He would have different 
personas and he would go in and be like, oh, I heard this stock's going to do well. And then he would reply to himself and be like, me too. I also heard this. Yeah, it was just Ugh. all sock puppeting. These fake people who are like, this stock Jonathan owns, but they wouldn't say that, is doing great. And then it would go up because other people would buy it and then he'd sell it. They'd lose, he'd mm-hmm. win. Well, that's and, what I mean. Yeah. It's like all fake. I didn't. <laughs> I, I had an ex who was a commodities trader. I was like, what were your qualifications when you got hired? And he was like, mm, literally nothing. Like, I was a white guy who went to Stanford. Oh, and, no. And he, but then it was just like, <laughs> he was like, I don't know, all day we would guess, like, corn? Seems good. Like, <laughs> cheap? Maybe. It's, like, intangible. Like, it's not a thing that he ever, like, touched or saw. And I was like, what? That's baffling. It's just like he's his job was to play a game. It's almost like the scene in Arrested Development where Tobias is going around being like, heard about that Funke? Like, it's literally that, but on like a national scale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. And the internet sort of grooved his approach to it. Uh, there's also another person here. His name's uh, Navinder Singh Sarau. And he's from another article called Six Random Nobodies Who Secretly Run the World. Uh, He was one person. He was living in his parents' house in London, and he was in his early 30s. But he used the internet to spoof trading contracts. So he would make it seem as if a trade was going to happen, and then it didn't. (gasps) And he apparently made $50 million doing that. Did he go to jail? I don't exactly know. It's very hard to tell if he went to jail or not. Because also financial news is hard to read, I'm finding. Yeah. It's very difficult to track. He was he was taken in by Tom Hanks from Catch Me If You Can. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, that sounds and, right. Yeah. But, wow. <laughs> but he, That's and, what I mean. It's all fake. And he only got caught because one move he did in 2010, it crashed the Dow Jones by 600 points. So it, it didn't crash crash it, but it went down quite a bit. And then they were like, what's going on? And it was because this one guy did a bunch of fake trades oh to such an extent God. that it messed with it. And that wow. there's a Bloomberg article about how he also lost the whole fortune just separately through stuff he invested in and other people scammed him. And it's it's weird to me that I, I think I was raised thinking that a lot of different people and companies and actual work is what runs the stock market. And in many cases, it's just like bold individuals, mm-hmm. random people just deciding I'm the person who gets to wear that shirt and do the stock thing. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's no qualifications. <laughs> Zero. My ex studied engineering. And then oh, they were yeah. like, you want to come be a trader? And he was like, sure. I know how to build bridges. Could I do this instead? Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, whatever. You seem like you look good in that shirt. Come on over. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. I am wearing a contrast collar shirt right now. And I didn't oh, no. think about it in terms of like, I'm coming to talk about the stock market. <laughs> it's very different from the Michael Douglas shirt. I, I don't mean to okay, make thanks. people listening at home think you're wearing that exact But I would love for them to think that. And suspenders. <laughs> right. And I have gray hair. Just picture Michael Douglas. That's who I am. One of those enormous beige phones with the big <laughs> antenna on it. <laughs> That's what I'm talking into right now. Yeah. <laughs> buy, sell, buy, sell. I just hang up. I move the antenna down. (laughs) Speaking of commodities, too, because one thing that I think is maybe not necessarily public knowledge is that there's also a stock market, a currency market, a commodity market. Mm -hmm. Like There's all sorts of different spaces that these things get traded in. And with commodities, there was a guy named Steve Perkins. And uh, he's in, I want to cite these people's great crack writing. It's six people who single-handedly screwed entire economies. It's by Robert Evans and Sam Cooper. And Steve Perkins was an oil trader. So he was trading the commodity of oil, Mm -hmm. which, uh, as many of us know, is very valuable. And in 2010, he 
went out drinking all weekend. Like the company did a paid trip for them to go drink and party. And then he decided to just keep drinking Monday and Tuesday when he got back to work. Like he'll just keep it going because he's sure. on a roll. And then he ended up buying $520 million in oil over a 19-hour period where apparently he was just kind of blacked out. Um, and it was up to 69% of the total world trading in oil because apparently in his line of work, you only are supposed to purchase stuff when people ask you to, you know, and pay for it and sure, stuff. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just kind of went ahead and did it. And I guess there's no rules or systems or anything. Sure. What year yeah. was this? It was 2010. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, And uh, then what happened? They just kind of tried to switch it all back, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Oh, no. And did he go to jail? Uh, there's no uh, No one went no one to jail. Do yeah. you think any of these white dudes tanking the economy went to jail? No. <laughs> Jail's full of people of color who had one gram of weed. <laughs> the end. I think also there is, I mean, a party culture associated with Wall Street, too. Yeah. Like a masculine sort of like. Yeah, party, hang out, you know, be be at the office all hours. Like, I'm sure these people are not healthy. It seems like it, yeah. Yeah. And it, then they're yeah. like bleary-eyed and tired and like and like coming down from cocaine and they're like, I don't know, what's the world economy? That sure. <laughs> That's who we want in charge. Yeah. Is I, those guys. I'm thinking of pop culture again, like Wolf of Wall Street, Matthew McConaughey is advising Leonardo DiCaprio on the mm -hmm. uppers, downers, and masturbation he used right, exactly. to get through his day. Right. Like, oh, I need to do these things to my body to make my brain function to move the entire world economy at my job. Great. Yeah. So they could just <laughs> they could just switch it back? I for one thing, don't know a lot about the economy, but I've sure. researched it as best I can. But also I feel like journalism struggles to cover this stuff because I think the the articles we put together and then also what they're drawing on tends to cover like the mistake or mm -hmm. the event of it, you know? And I don't know if there's that much follow-up on what happens to these people. Like maybe all of them went to jail. I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't even sure. Like the Martha Stewart thing, the insider trading. Yeah. I wasn't even, I was like, what? <laughs> I guess it's like they are not allowed to give information I don't. I think if you asked five people on the street, they would have no idea what insider trading is. I, yeah, I think they would only know the vibe of it. They would be like, I don't know, she did something shady. Exactly. That's 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 it. The vibe is very clear, you know. But that I, that's it. They like snuck some info. <laughs> okay. Why? Why is that bad? <laughs> if you could write in and tell me why insider trading is bad at www.whyisitbad.com. <laughs> oh, that should be my new podcast. Why is, why it, is bad? it bad? And then I have people come on and tell me why things are bad. <laughs> <laughs> just various activities and ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just have people on and I'm like, hey, so like this idea, why is it bad? Yeah. Please. Communism. Poaching. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What's, what's wrong? Right. And I don't necessarily <laughs> think they're good. Oh, sure. I just need to know what my argument is when I say it's bad. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Part of the job description for handling this stuff, as far as I can tell, is you're allowed to mess up some of the time. Or if mistakes happen, it's an element of how it works. Because there's also a guy in that same article. Uh, his name's David X. Lee. And he was a – he's a mathematician but also works in the markets. Mm -hmm. And he came up with a something called the Gaussian copula function. Okay. And this was a very complex – 
formula that let people try to predict how debt would work and then uh, sort of place bets on that debt called collateralized debt obligations. And long story short, it was a formula that worked absolutely perfectly for letting people make money almost automatically for about five years because they would just bet on whether debts would get paid back or not. And somehow it always worked. All sorts of different kinds. And then eventually these people started using it to bet on housing market debt. Oh. And then housing market debt caused the entire Great Recession that we the all have lived short. through. The big short. Exactly. Uh-oh. I know there's a lot of factors going into something like that. Mm-hmm. One of them is that this one guy thought of one formula that was so successful, at one point people were saying, this guy should win a Nobel Prize because he's making so many people wealthy, it, it raises them out of poverty or something like that. Okay. And then it suddenly didn't work and the whole economy crashed. And it can happen that way because one guy does something that's appealing to a few other people. And it's amazing to me that the economy can be in the hands of just a couple of people. It seems crazy. Yes. And also that it's in the hands of, like, we just trust these dudes. Yeah. We're like, I don't know. What is he, a guy? Seems legit. Like, what's (laughs) our, what? (laughs) So, so, okay. So people were betting that this, that this would get paid back. Yeah, and it, it was investors. They could take a set of debts and bundle them into one thing that you can invest in. Mm. And this became its own market, and it grew from initially being something that $920 billion were in, which is a lot. Wow. It grew to $62 trillion, Oh, which is, uh, I think, just more money than I've ever seen written down in any way. And Here's so the then thing. It, it was big, and then it fell down. Here's the thing. Is that <laughs> <laughs> when people say— Oh, we can't do total student loan forgiveness. Where would the money come from? We can't fix Flint's water crisis. Where would the money come from? Mm -hmm. Do you know where it would come from? This shit. (laughs) Who's holding on to this? Our defense budget is so big. Yeah. Like two people have all the money in our whole country. And then we go, I don't know where the money would come from. Okay. I have some ideas. (laughs) And and I six hundred and twenty trillion or whatever you said? Uh, 62 trillion. Yeah. 62 trillion. One trillion could cover student loan. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Everything we need. Yeah. yeah. Like, what? I don't understand. What do you even need all that money for? To just make more money. That was their whole goal. I feel like people on both sides of, we don't have the money for that, or why don't we have the money mm-hmm. for that? Either way, we're all just sort of guessing what all the numbers are. Yeah. And uh, the people who say there is enough money to fix it are correct because there is enough. If you just look at it in a broad way, um, it's billions versus trillions. But we just are like so individualized that we're like, well, that guy who made 60 trillion, he probably did something better than, than us. Am I a socialist? Probably. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, why does this guy need all of that? I don't know if people understand that all of that is an expression of priorities. Like, it's Mm -hmm. all, we could prioritize taking care of all those things. Like, is it, is it something where we feel like the way we're prioritizing things now makes the whole thing run and we don't want to break it almost? I feel like people are like, that individual imperative and will and Mm -hmm. cowboy element is what makes the economy go. So if we blow that up, we'll lose everything. There's this mythology, especially around the stock market, of like, we earned it, you know? Or like, that this person did something special. But I don't think they did. And it's like, and then we're kept out of it because we're told that, like, even you saying, like, I don't understand the writing on it, that's on purpose. That's to keep... Like certain people, like a barrier to entry. All financial stuff, financial writing, all like money blogs, all all of it 
is is sort of to has like a barrier of entry to keep certain people out because they write in jargon and they don't need to write in that jargon. They just do it in order to like make things more complicated so that like they can keep certain people out out of the out of investing, out of the stock market and like intimidate people away from like oh money's hard, I just don't know. I'll just not even start to learn. Yeah. And then that's why there's no economic mobility. That's so true. I think a lot of people have had that feeling. I know I've had it. Yeah. It's, it's really uh, scary. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I, it's, I've made all of this stuff my full-time job. And like I said, I still don't know anything. <laughs> I know nothing. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. They are here to support this show, The Cracked Podcast, because they know you listen to it. And we talk about all kinds of different things on this show week to week. So that means you probably have a diverse array of interests. And guess what? You do. You're awesome. Why don't you build a website to be someone who shows that off about themselves? Maybe you want to sell products. Maybe you're doing writing that's interesting. Maybe you'd know much, much more about the economy than I do. That would be pretty exciting. Either way, you can use your own website to do it. And the best way to do that is Squarespace. They have beautiful templates. Those templates are created by world-class designers. Then you get to customize every element of it in a way that is very intuitive and very hands-on on their site. Their sites are also optimized for mobile right out of the box. And let's say you do want to sell something. They have a powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online and then use analytics to help grow that site in real time to help your sales. It all adds up. It's a really great system because Squarespace wants to empower millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms as they turn their great ideas into something real. Why don't you be one of them? Head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked offer code cracked. Those kind of systems you talk about in general to keep people confused about it, it seems really pervasive. Like Mm -hmm. we were talking about cryptocurrency before, and that's something that I think people assume is very open, especially to the young, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's just this new currency that only the youths get. And that's Mm -hmm. how it works. And then you did a great episode about crypto recently where you guys got into how it's still difficult for people of color to get into or minorities or underprivileged people Mm -hmm. to get into because it has, it seems like it has a lot of the same pitfalls of uh, regular money. Yes. (laughs) We've just made new money. But there's there's stuff that's combating that. There's Guapcoin and there's Wakanda Coin or Wakan Coin, which that's is good a, f- a great name. Yeah. Um, and those are like specifically for black owned businesses or like black investors. And then my friend Taylor Hatmaker, who's a writer at TechCrunch, they put together this document called like Cryptocurrency for Queers. And it's basically like how to get LGBTQ people involved in cryptocurrency. So, like, there's small things that are, like, keeping, you know, trying to to diversify who's doing this. Because, again, it's the same thing as the stock market, right? It's, like, some, like, white guy is, like, I know about this. I'll invest in it. But then, like, it's just unearned confidence that they have. Just being able to make money on these markets at all, you just need to have not only resources but time. Like, it needs to be a, a chunk of money that you don't need to touch for mm-hmm. a long period of time because— 
in general, over time, it will grow. Yeah. Like it, se- it seems like the stock market's almost an expression of human progress. Like, uh, yeah. It's, it's worth more because there's just been more people and technology and things made. These currencies, too, there's one um, in the same article that David X. Lee and Steve Perkins are in. It also talks about George Soros, mm. who is uh, known for many, many things. Uh, in the 90s, he was simply an investor and speculator who was very, very, very rich. And Soros decided that he was tracking the British pound, the currency. Okay. And he had the sense that the British government was overvaluing the money because it was helping them get into like a growing European financial system that's Mm. now become the EU and the euro and everything like that. And so he said, I know they're overvaluing it. What I'm going to do is short their entire national currency because I just have enough money. I'm one of the couple of people in the world who has enough money to do this bet. It is a straight up gamble. So shorting, what I've learned about it is it's when you promise to buy shares of something in the future Mm -hmm. at whatever price it'll be in the future because you expect that the price will go down by the time you need to actually buy it. And he bet that this would happen with their entire economy? Yeah, he said the entire British pound will go down and I'm going to sell 10 billion US dollars worth of it right now on one day, which was called Black Wednesday in the press. $10 billion worth of it? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. And he was like, I'm just going to sell all of it all at once and flood the market with it, which will decrease the price of it. And I'm so confident that the government has done it wrong that they won't be able to buy it back in a way that stops me. Oh, my me. God. And, uh, he and then was... he became the king of England. <laughs> That's how you become king, I imagine. Now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. why yeah. not? He just showed up and was like, I own you all. Colonialism, bitch. Like, <laughs> he's like, remember what you did to India? It's time for me to do it back to you. <laughs> and then also he was boosted because he did he did such a big trade that other people noticed. And so they were like, I think he's right. I'm going to do it, too. So it was a combination of him and people following him. Sure. It worked. He made over one billion U.S. dollars in a day on it. And then the U.K. had to completely leave the European financial system for a while until Mm. they figured out their their shit. And then in the meantime, the pound fell about a quarter of its value over the next three months after that. People have too much power. Do you know there's, like, five people who own our government? Oh, boy. (laughs) Like, there's, like, oh, my God. You have to read Dark Money by Jane Mayer. It's the scariest book I've ever read. But it's basically about how there's nothing we can do because five billionaires own everything. I'm going to spoil part of it. They're really cool billionaires, right? They're great? Nope. Ah, man. Um, I'm going to— Every time. And I don't mean to to discourage people from voting because I think obviously we should vote. But there's statistics that the average American has 2% influence on the government. Like we don't—we have no— Like all of them put together. Yeah, like we have no, oh, con- no, we have like no control of, like we have this false idea that we control the government at all, and we do not. There's That's, so much campaign finance, like Citizens United, which allowed like you know people to to give as much money as whatever. The people don't really have any say. It also seems like on top of not having a lot of say in the government, yeah. there are also all these people who can also swing the whole economy. Yep. If That's you what I mean. It. One guy took down the UK. Yeah, he you just, can just broke do the it. whole bank. Because there's so much money. People can just do whatever they want. If we look at history, there's a guy who broke Scotland uh, before there was a UK and kind of helped create it. This article is six people who single-handedly screwed entire economies that uh, we talked about before. Mm-hmm. William Patterson was his name. 
And he was operating in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And he was a Scottish person who said, let's form a joint stock company, which okay. is where all uh, anyone can come and just invest in this company that is I created for one purpose. I yeah. don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to point out that none of these people who've done fucked up shit are women. Thank you. <laughs> it's the kind of thing where I look at history in general, too, and I'm like, oh, look at all these male monsters of history yep. stuff. And I feel like it's largely a product of women being frozen out of power. Yep. Like they would have had the the, the, the <laughs> balls and strength to do terrible things too. They were just locked out by injustice. Literally you know? one woman was like, I have some some thoughts and want to lead an army. And they were like, mm, we'll burn you at the stake. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> so this white Scottish guy, yeah. uh, William Patterson, he said, hey, we're going to do this joint stock company. You all invest for one purpose, then we'll do the purpose, then it pays out. Okay. And uh, that also, there were those kind of companies for all sorts of things in the history of colonialism. Oh. Not a great thing, uh, necessarily. <laughs> but, like, for instance, the company that was called the Virginia Company built Jamestown oh, Colony in Virginia. Yeah. So that was a common system for this kind of thing. Yeah. Patterson said, we'll build a joint stock company to build a Scottish colony in Panama, because at this time, Scotland is its own separate country completely. Okay. And uh, so he said, we'll build a colony in Panama, then we'll be able to build uh, some sort of canal or trade system or something and run world trade, and we'll make a lot of money. Isn't that great? Okay. And it was such a good pitch that about 20% of all the money in Scotland went into the company. Uh, just all of the money that existed in the country, which is equivalent today of about $400 billion. And he then set off to build the colony, and it failed. It didn't work out, partly because that was Spanish territory. And so the Spanish just kicked them out. And so it didn't okay. work. And so no one, everyone lost their money who invested in this company. And it caused an extreme depression in Scotland to the point where a few years later, England was very easily able to pass the Acts of Union in 1707 that created the UK and just sort of absorbed Scotland into England. Wow. Because one guy had this scheme to, I guess, try to... I feel like they didn't have canal building technology. I don't know why he was trying to do it that early, but that was his plan. How weak are all our economies? <laughs> it's it's uh, hopefully, hopefully they're very strong, but it, it, there are ways that people can send these shocks through them. Yeah. And I feel like... If we all felt more financially literate, we would feel like readier for this kind of thing. On the show in the past, we've also talked about how the president at any given time only has some control over mm -hmm. the economy at all. But and we think it's like his whole thing. Yeah. And in particular, most of what a president does affects later years. It's not really mm. during their own time. Interesting. So like if, for instance, our current president was bragging about the economy's success, it's probably the previous guy's like, you know, effort and, and I've work heard and that stuff before. Like that. Yeah. So he One, just so so Trump just brags about the economy, but it was it doesn't matter. Like well, if he yeah. says the economy is strong, is it self-fulfilling prophecy that then people want to be like invest because they're like, oh, he said the economy is strong. It does. It does seem like that is one element where a president deserves maybe some credit if they are just really good at the sales pitch of mm -hmm, the economy mm -hmm. being strong, because I think that can kind of be self-fulfilling and be part of what happens. I don't think any president would go, the economy is weak. Oh, yeah. They always, the State of the Union is like, the state of our union is strong. Nobody would ever be like, the state of our union is bad. Here's why. There is a, that reminds me, there's one story about Jimmy Carter and he did what is now called the Malays speech, even though oh. I don't think he actually uses the word Malays in it. That's a myth about it. But he gave a speech kind of implying that things were not super <sighs> and people were furious at him. It was like, you failed at the one thing we need, Americans which is... Americans are 
So <laughs> relentless boosterism. That's what we need. And he we're, didn't do it. We're so have our heads so far up our own asses. It's so <laughs> bad. Well, and as far as our economy's strength, uh, that same article about William Patterson, it also talks about a guy who I'd never heard of, even though he he turned the economy over one time. Uh, his name was Augustus Heinze, and he owned a bunch of copper mines in Montana, and it okay. was all one company. And in 1906, he said, uh, hey, I know what I'll do. I own this company, right? I will buy up all of the shares of the company's stock and then short it. And that shorting thing that we talked about George Soros doing before – I'll do this shorting thing, and then they'll have to buy the shares from me in the end. And I, not knowing how the economy works very well, I think that's a great idea. And then that isn't really a thing you can actually do. It just kind of doesn't work. But isn't that insider trading then? It's probably also kind of that. Yeah, because there's all kinds knows, of ways. Because it's his company. Yeah, it's like insider it's like trading in his head. Yeah. It's like where they know that <laughs> where they know that a bad play will make more money. Yeah. So they do that and then you know what I mean? Right. Wow, he the producered his company, <laughs> which is a verb now. And yeah, and he for all kinds of reasons that um, people who understand the economy better than me know, you can't really do that. Apparently he also failed to just count the amount of stock properly and didn't even oh. buy up all of it or anything. And so long story of it short, its value dropped 85%, which would be bad for him, you know, but then it caused the entire New York Stock Exchange to drop by half. Um, Why? So it, because like that failing hurt people enough that other selling happened and other reckless buying happened. Everyone in New York remembered Montana existed. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, what? Oh, no. Oh, God. Things are bad there, huh? <laughs> It'd be the equivalent of today if the Dow dropped about 12,000 points. It, it would be that kind of incident. So, and so then people were so shaken by it that the U.S. government created the Federal Reserve that we have today mm. as like a buffer against that kind of thing. But that panic in 1906 is one of like several economic panics that happened uh, in the past, usually before the Great Depression, that we don't really hear about in history class. It's weird. I went to the Federal Reserve on a vacay. and <laughs> <laughs> where, where is it? I went to the one in Chicago. Oh, cool. I think I've I think I've been to the Mint there. Yeah, anyway. they have like a museum. Yeah. And I was there uh, on a reporting trip and I was like, you know what I'll do with my daytime? Go to the <laughs> Federal Reserve. It was me and one other person. Uh, <laughs> and it's messed up there because they have, they have a video game that you can play where you approve or deny loans based on like the characters in the game like pitching you. <laughs> which is wholly Terrifying. dystopian. <laughs> and then it tells you, and then when you do it, it, it says why you should have or should not have approved this loan. So I'm doing it and I'm like, and I'm so scared because it's like a white guy who wants a loan for his like winter home. And I'm like, not approve. And then they were like a black couple who wants to start a gardening business. And I'm like, approve and then I was like please 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 and then they were like you're correct and I was like oh thank god I thought it was like going to be a racist game <laughs> fully prepared because I was like their idea is good and his idea is selfish oh god um and then there was this big ball or something and it had a million dollars in it and it said the plaque said uh take a picture with this million dollars because this will probably be the only time you'll see this much money and I was like and like, as if like, this is fun and friendly. And I was like, wow, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it just felt very icky. 
just how casual they were about how yeah. money works and how we all fit inside it. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, also, take that million dollars out of that ball and put it into your school system, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Don't make Chance the Rapper find that million, which he did. He donated a million. To right. Him. Exactly. But, uh, you know, maybe just pull it out of the many millions. You know. Also, like. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with, like, all those GoFundMes and stuff. It's like, oh, we could have better health care. We could have a government that cares about our schools. No, we need to rely on, like, individuals and also Chance the Rapper. Cool. As there are more and more of these GoFundMes for people's health issues, some conservative person is going to see that and be like, what if there was a GoFundMe for everybody? And, like, everybody paid into it. <laughs> I invented health care. I'm out. I'm out. No, never mind. That's the thing I was told I don't like. I was told I don't like that. Never mind. I invented healthcare. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> That's really funny. God. Especially with what money could be going out and doing, you did a great episode that we've we've touched on a bit about just how the stock market works. Mm -hmm. And you talked to um, Morgan Simon, who wrote a book called Real Impact. Yeah. And she did some really fascinating things with trying to invest in a way that improves the world. Amazing. Yeah. Her book is um, about impact investing, and it's about how you can invest, but also, but just in companies that you believe in. Because a lot of times you, you do a mutual fund and you don't know how, what companies are in it. And then you're like, oh, I'm giving my money to like a company I disagree with. And so like when you could have more like control over the minutia and like invest in black owned businesses or invest in queer owned businesses or invest in just something with climate change, like, like a company that cares about climate change or like like, you know, put your money in company in specific companies that like you're really looking into. And uh, she said a really interesting thing, which is that as long as you're a student in a college, you are part of that college's endowment. Yeah. So you can go to the college and say, what is our endowment invested in? And then if you don't like any of the things, you can influence it. You have an opinion. You can tell the college as a student what you want them to invest in or not invest in, and they kind of have to listen to you. That was but so nobody does it. Well, yeah, because we don't think of it, and it's not money that we think of as ours. But right, it, and it been... is. That's the time you can have the most impact, she was saying, because that's the time you technically have access to the most money. You're a constituent of the college. The college represents you. So right. you can go and say, I don't want you to invest in this company that dumps you know, plastic into the Pacific. And then the college has to, like, take that into account. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all explained in the episode. We think of the stock market as being, like, out of our hands, but you can choose what to invest in. I just love that idea that you can choose to be large, like all these people we're talking about who swung the whole market, mm -hmm. many of them by drinking heavily or making sure. mistakes. But we can think of ourselves as being of that size or, or being able to even be... There's a great story. Uh, her name is Wangari Mathai, who she has a parable about a hummingbird that just does what it can about a forest fire because it, it's very oh. small, but it just keeps bringing the water and, oh. and the other animals are running away. We talked about it on a past episode. It's the kind of thing where whether or not we feel large, I feel like there are things we can do to try to help the world and, and mm -hmm. through this stock market that uh, seems both inscrutable and evil is mm -hmm. actually something that we can point a positive way. I think that's amazing. That's what Morgan's book is about, is like uh, how you can have an impact in a positive direction based on what you invest in. Yeah. And just making sure, like if you have an accountant or whatever, just like saying, hey, what what's exactly in my mutual fund? Just wondering. Because 
it's like a bunch of different things. But if it's if you're like, you know, oh, my God, the CEO of this company said gay people should die and I'm gay. Like, we got to not invest in that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we never like look into it. Yeah. I have no idea what's in my 401k. Right. I know it's some things that apparently would be good to put money in. You can move it around (laughs) if you want. Yeah, really. And and if you're a college student, listen to the episode because if you're a college student, that money is technically yours. You're a constituent. So you could, or I don't know if I'm using the right word, but you you can influence where the college puts it. Yeah, for sure. If you like get enough like manpower going. Well, and in and in maybe any organization to of enough size too. Like I that episode you guys also pulled out, it's kind of dark, but it's that before the um, school shooting in Parkland, Florida, the Florida Teachers Pension Fund had 500 grand invested in a company called American Outdoor that made the rifle used in the shooting. Yes, and, so and, then and you have to look into it, and then mm. right, and then afterwards they pulled it. Yeah, but right, you have to look into like what what exactly is your investments, which is what a, a, a pension fund is, or yeah. like a 401k. How how is it being used? Because I'm sure there are people who didn't know and they disagree, you know, they disagreed with guns. They just they didn't think like, you know, that kind of rifle should be sold or they wholly don't like guns at all and think we should melt them down and throw them uh, into the ocean. That's the thing is like you don't know what you're giving money to or or you're investing in. So you really have to like look into it because I'm sure the people who had that opinion about melting all the guns down before the shooting didn't know that their money was being put there. Yeah. If if any of us are tied to some fund like that, we can look into it and just say, hey, this should be in a company that wants to, like, improve the climate or something. Yeah. The way that, like, you know, queer people were like, oh, got to not go to Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we care about it with our direct dollars, but we don't look into it with our investments. It's like feels like it's we're not in control of it, and we are. What are some things we can do as far as our financial health to improve sort of our own mental health. Because I feel like the more we do to invest properly and invest in a way where we know what's happening with it, that seems like one step, right? In terms of feeling like, oh, I'm out of debt and I'm growing my wealth. Like what, uh, I wonder if there are other things we can do to feel better. You You just have to alleviate the stigma and talk to your friends and talk to people because it's already confusing and bad. And then if you put all this individualized like self-hatred on top of it, it doesn't help anyone. My friend, uh, my comedy partner, Allison Raskin, always says, there's the thing and then there's how you feel about the thing. And so you you have to eliminate the like how you feel about the thing being bad. You know, let's say it's similar to like if you're like feel that you've gained weight and you're upset about it, then that's one thing. But if you feel that you've gained weight and it doesn't bother you, then who cares? So, like, it's a thing of, like, if you invest in something and you've lost some money and you hate yourself, (laughs) that's that's a problem. Whereas if you invest 20 bucks in something and you lose that money and you're like, ah, that sucks, but whatever, then it just, like, doesn't affect your mental health as much. So you have to eliminate the, like, thing where you go, oh, I lost this money. That means I'm an idiot who deserves to be kicked off a building or whatever. (laughs) And it's like, no, it just means you lost that money. Like there's so many mistakes, right? Like I had a, a, I had scrimped and saved and got a little savings account. It had $8,000 in it. And I was so excited. Um, And then my car broke down and Mm. I was like, ah, shit. And so then I had to fix the car. 
And the people were like, it's going to cost like $2,000. And I was devastated because I was like, oh, I had built up this money. Like I was like, had this thing in my mind. I was going to get to double digits. Like I was so excited. And then I had to take $2,000 from that and fix the car. That's life, man. Yeah, that is. I never thought about that way, but there's this human, emotional, psychological spectrum of these traders who are like, I'm just some guy, but I'm going to run everything. And then there's me down on the other end who's like, I saved this money for a rainy day and I feel bad about using it on a rainy day, which is yeah. crazy. It's for, That's what it's for. Just spend it. Like, you it's need, fine. You, yeah, you need <laughs> to not – like if something comes up, you just can't like – you got to take care of it and you can't spend the extra time and energy and mental capacity being like, fuck me, I'm the worst. That's just life. Like, and don't be embarrassed. Like I was so embarrassed to be like, oh, like to tell my, my best friend, like, oh, I had to take this money out to fix my car. That's my best friend. Like, why am I embarrassed to say that? I felt like she would be like, you're irresponsible. You have to talk to each other. If I had said, oh man, this this car place is going to charge me $2,000 to fix my car. Maybe your friend will be like, actually, I know a guy, and he'll do it for 1000 But we just keep these, this stuff inside, and we don't talk about it to do, like, what's best for us. If you needed, like, surgery on your hand, you would, like, ask your friends who's the best hand surgeon. Sure. But you don't say, like, you don't talk about, like, money stuff that way. It's almost sort of a parallel to a lot of just emotional things and like, like how relationships are going. Or, very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and also maybe this also might be a thing that if people feel like, oh, I completely blew it with my money or I screwed up a thing. There's one example here of uh, professional trader people really, really blowing it in a way that <laughs> I don't know if it's even that much money that moved. They're just very, very dumb to me yeah. because this is, it's from five hilarious stories of stock prices driven by stupidity by Luke McKinney. Oh, I loved and that. Um, have you ever heard of the company Nest Labs? No. They uh, they were a tech startup that it was a company that designed a lot of things for the home. Okay. Um, like they uh, got a lot of news in 2013 for building a better smoke alarm. That's oh, a okay. smart smoke alarm. And then they were doing such great work that in 2014, Google bought them for a couple billion dollars because okay. they just wanted to have that tech. And I think it's now Google Nest, essentially. That's what that is. Hmm. And so they were way ahead on the smart home, and that seems like a great company to invest in. They were also a private company. There is no stock to buy. And oh. so in 2013 and 2014, and then a smaller scale probably other times, traders bought the symbol NEST without checking if it was Nest Labs, which it was not. It was actually a company called Nestor Inc., that makes traffic enforcement systems and was also completely out of business. They were not doing it anymore or oh they didn't exist. God. And so a couple of times in the past few years, people have spiked their the value of their shares by thousands of percentage points. Well, what happens then? Because it's not a company anymore. It seems like they own a stock that does have some like ephemeral value uh-huh. because just people are bu- trying to buy it so much. But as soon as anybody then ironically Googles what it is, then they say, oh, I bought nothing and dump it immediately. So the the graphs in the article, it's just an enormous peak from nothing in a couple of days each of those years. And we think these people are smart. We think right. they're smarter than us. Why well, we're smarter than them and we should be investing because we can we can take them for a ride apparently. They're, they don't seem very put together. I'm going to make up a company 
And then get, I shouldn't have said that on this show. Fuck. <laughs> Shit. Just first check in with the why is that bad, folks, about yeah. if it's a bad idea. If I make a company, <laughs> a fake one, and then people invest in it, is that bad? <laughs> now it's just evolved into like me doing things that are like if I, oh, if yeah. I hit a car and don't leave a note, is that bad? <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Gabby Dunn for joining me and exploring the entire world economy in a pretty brief amount of time. I, we, did a, we did a good job, right? We got into it. It was fun. And hey, you, why don't you do a nice job of getting into our food notes where you will find Gabby's excellent podcast, Bad With Money, in particular her recent episode about the stock market and what it is and how it can be a force for bad, honestly, but also a force for good that you can be a part of. We'll also link all kinds of history and cracked articles about people who have swung that entire stock market on their own. Also, an article that I find fun from The Economist about Jacob Fugger, who we didn't really get to in this show uh, based on time, but he's a landmark person in world history because as we talked about all these people in the stock market, many of them had to buy or acquire the wealth it took to then swing the entire economy. Jacob Fugger was someone who was the banker to kings in the 14 and 1500s, and so a couple of kings could give him most of the wealth in the world, and the article from The Economist gets into how he was a pivotal person for major world events like, I don't know, the Reformation, just through his one life. It really is a Ferris Bueller car, and he drove it in more parking lot donuts than just about anybody. And as far as this episode's other elements go, its theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where it turns out you can use a dollar sign and then a couple letters as a stock symbol that Twitter actually indexes in some way. It's all very fascinating. I, I had no idea. It's really fun. But if you don't want to talk about just dollars and cents on there, look me up. I'm at Alex Schmitty on Twitter talking about Snoopy and all kinds of other things. My website is alexschmitty.com. It's got show dates, newsletters, and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.